Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Living legend, rock star, rock and roll survivor, serial entrepreneur. Glenn Wheatley's story is definitely larger than life. A kid from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland who left his job as an apprentice lithographer. Yep, that was a job back before the digital revolution. He headed south with his band Bay City Union to seek fame and fortune. He found it and lost it a few times over. Through all the ups and downs, Glenn's irrepressible enthusiasm and trailblazing management skills, particularly with his mate and client John Farnham, have seen him etch his place in music and media history. I've worked with Glenn on and off over the years, firstly when I made one of the music videos for the Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack, which was on Glenn's Emerald City Records at the time in 1992. Then in the late 90s, we co-managed my wife, Kate Severano, for a few years there. We cover a lot of ground in today's chat, everything from working with Bowie to founding Australia's first FM radio station to negotiating an $8 million US advance for the Little River Band deal with Capitol Records. Glenn was the manager at the time. But I particularly love exploring the stories about his transition from bass player in the Master's Apprentices to artist management and entrepreneurship. Rather than sitting around and waiting for it to happen, Glenn was always willing to roll up his sleeves and put in the hard work. I feel honoured to have this bloke as a guest today. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Glenn Wheatley. Glenn Wheatley. Lee. Good morning. Good morning, Lee. How are you? I'm, I'm very well, all things considered. In lockdown in Melbourne, you know, it's uh, and the curfew, at, you know, got a, an hour's grace. We, we got a curfew at nine o'clock now instead of eight o'clock. So, so we've got to be happy about that. <laughs> Mate, well, I'm in Sydney in day 10 of hotel quarantine. So, you know, <laughs> I know your pain. Yeah. I'm giving uh, the food delivery service a workout because uh, the catering isn't so flash. So, Ooh. anyway. <laughs> There you go. Mate, um, I've been lucky because I've had something to kind of entertain me. While uh-oh, uh-oh, oh, Paper Paradise. That was some time ago now, mate, but um, I was very happy to have done that. Um, I'd love to have another shot at it, updating it a little bit. Um, but no, it, it was cathartic for me to do something like that. I've actually yeah. done two books now. Yeah, well, for the audience, I'm holding up Paper Paradise, Confessions of a Rock and Roll Survivor. This is... Glenn's autobiography, but it came out about 20 years ago, and you're right, you need to do another one because there's been a lot of ups and downs and a lot of action since then, hasn't there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of good, a lot of bad, but uh, mainly good, and I'm still alive to, to show it and still the most happily married man that I know, so next to you, Lee, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I, no complaints in life. Oh, that's great. Yeah, congratulations on that. How many years have you been married with Canine? Um, 38. 38. Mate, that's incredible, particularly because of the adventures that you've been on and the amount of miles you've covered in your travels and adventures. That's a huge achievement. Well done. Thank you. No, well, it's Gaynor, my wife, is uh, is a serious partner, a true sense of the word. I mean, she uh, is a partner in my business. She's a director of all the companies. She's a director of my radio stations. She's on the board of all the radio stations and she uh, she does a lot, you know, and when I get artists like John Farnham, I mean, I think he takes more advice from Gaynor than he does from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, having just read the book, clearly it wasn't always like that, was it? There was a certain point where things hit rock bottom and um, you began to, you know, confide in Gaynor more and obviously, as you've just said, in- included her a lot more since then. Yes, look, it's fair to say that there was a time of my life when I bought my Eon FM back in Melbourne. I'd sold Eon to Rod Muir and I didn't see him. He kept me on the board, but Rod didn't have a board meeting in 12 months. And so I called him out of the blue and just said, mate, you're not that keen about Eon, are you? Because there hasn't been one board meeting. Um, I'd like to buy the farm back. And then where it came from, I just said, and while I'm there, I'd like to make an offer for two triple M. And his reaction was immediate, or, mate, cost you a lot of money. (laughs) I knew 
then it was for sale. He didn't tell me to, as Rod Mueller could do, just to fuck off. He said, well, mate, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And I thought, it's for sale. God damn it. So anyway, the next morning, he had sent Trish Richards down, his financial controller, and within a week, I was up in Sydney, holed up in the Siebel townhouse for a week, and ended up buying two Triple M off Rod Mueller as well. So things were going crazy for me there for a while. I listed the company, my little weekly communications, the mom and pop store that found the $90 million that was necessary to buy Triple M's back. We we listed on the stock exchange, but I was a man possessed. I mean, I really wanted to buy more stations, build a radio network. I found myself up in Brisbane meeting with Christopher Scase, buying then his FM 104 in Brisbane, and ended up buying 580 in Adelaide and 6pm in Perth, and it was insane. And um, it's fair to say that I got locked up in all of this. I spent very little time. I was a new father to young kids. I was forever not at home. I was forever on the road meeting with my triple M's. I changed FM 104 to triple M. I changed 96 of M in Perth to triple M. Almost got run out of town for doing that because I didn't realise how parochial those people are in Perth. I mean, how dare this upstart come in and change the name of their station, 96FM, to Triple M. Yeah. What was I thinking? Anyway, <laughs> but it's fair to say I, the hubris had taken over my life. There's no doubt about it. I, I was possessed. An acquisitions frenzy. Well, it was. It was <laughs> insane. I mean, what, what I was doing. I mean, in the middle of all this, managing Australian Crawl, John Farnham, Little Riverbend, all at the same time. I mean, and building a radio empire that was the start of the Triple M network to this day. Um, And I needed a bit of a a wake-up call because I was excluding my family. I mean, I was excluding Gaynor. I was just this possessed man just building this empire. And it took the collapse of the Pyramid Building Society in Melbourne that took all of my savings and all of my then wealth in one fell swoop. I lost everything. And at that particular point, I had to really reassess my life and uh, I had to think about where I was going. And, and I, I think that was a sort of a bit of a catalyst that helped spark my marriage to become incredibly strong. And it is so strong to this day that maybe I needed that wake-up call. I mean, otherwise, I could have built this radio empire, but I may not have had a home. I may not have had a family. So... It was a good thing to learn at that age. Yeah, well, hats off to you, mate. I I read the book when it came out 20 years ago, but having read it again and having gone through that saga of the Ivy nightclub and the whole thing, oh, my God, that was just brutal, wasn't it? It's like down (laughs) for the count and then just down again and again and it just – I mean, obviously, you know, you made the decision to go into that venture and you were ultimately responsible for it, but what a nightmare and um, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. So well done for clawing your way out and, um, you know, getting back on top again. (laughs) I really did have to claw my way out. It was a mess. I mean, when something happens like the Pyramid Building Society, it took 270,000 Victorians down with it, um, including my grandparents, everybody, they lost their life savings and it decimated Melbourne and Victoria, that collapse. But I was vulnerable. I had all my borrowings with them and I'd overspent on the Ivy. It was a massive piece of real estate in the central business district of Melbourne and um, it came tumbling down like a house of cards. It really did. I mean, and it happened so quickly yeah. and it was all over before I knew it. Yeah. And the receivers had moved in. They're selling all of my personal property there was a public auction at the Malden Town Hall of the estate of Glen and Gaynor Wheatley at a public auction. Everything we ever owned, mate, was put under the hammer. And um, and it, you were in the media, you know, every day. They were having a field day with you, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was still trying to run Triple M in Melbourne and Triple M in Sydney. And at the same time, um, my goodness, it was it, it was a, a test, there's no doubt. But I, I, I came out the other side, man, and... Um, I've had the support of a lot of people around me, the support of people like John Farnham, and we've gone on to have extraordinary career together, um, and he's had extraordinary success, and I'd like to think I had uh, just a little bit to do with all of that. So, um, <laughs> Mate, well, that's a, that's a good point. Let's go back to the beginning without sounding like this is your life. Um, 
Let's go back. You grew up in Queensland, just sort of inland from the Sunshine Coast, working class family, left school 15, became an apprentice uh, photo lithographer. So how how the hell do you say that? A job that doesn't exist anymore. I was going to say, tell me. Lithographer. Lithographer. I used to reproduce all the colour photographs that you see in magazines. My job was the camera operator and I used to photograph these bits of art and then I had to separate the colours, the magenta, the, the cyan. The red, green, blue, all of that, yeah. All of it. And it's a printing process. Of course, it doesn't exist today because it's all computer. It's digital. It, you know, that job just does not exist anymore. Incredible, mate. Well, well, lucky there's a lesson in there for all the kids out there. If you're in an apprenticeship, just don't finish it. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Don't, no, I mean, I'm I, not going to say four, four years of five, but, I mean, as it turned out, I mean, I, it would have been for naught. Because I mean, <laughs> incredible. So you at that point? Uh, at what point did you pick up a guitar and go? Okay, I want to be a musician. Uh, I was in a little band at the time. Um, it was with Bay City Union in Brisbane with Matt Taylor, and um, we were playing wherever we could. But I ended up starting my own little club. I called it the St George Club, and it was at the All Saints Hall, a church hall in Ann Street in Brisbane, and. Um, I started running this on a Saturday night and it was going gangbusters. You know, I was making a lot of money for a little 17-year-old and I ended up running afoul of the then Ivan Damons of the world and the John Hannays of the world who were running the big nightclubs in Brisbane and they didn't like this little upstart in their territory and they made it difficult for me. I ended up uh, closing it down, but that was the start of me. I mean, I used to play with Bay City Union, do my set, then go back to the door and collecting all the money at the door. It was 50 cents to get in in those days. Wow. Um, <laughs> so I was, I was always playing there. And I guess I had the opportunity, Lobby Lloyd, my mentor in life, had a band called The Purple Hearts in Brisbane. And he called me at my office at my work one day, said, oh, mate, we need, a, we need a guitarist for tonight. Are you available? I'm going to, oh, my God. I've just been asked if I want to play with Purple Hearts, the biggest band in Brisbane, with Lobby Lloyd, this this legend of a guitarist. And uh, I went down and played at the Primitive with them. And Lobby, I turned up and he looked at me. I had my little surfy cut shirt on and my blonde surfy hair because I was a surfer as well in those days. And um, he looked at me and said, there's something wrong. He came up and he just messed my hair up, undid my collar, my little tab collar, ruffled up my shirt. He said, that's it. You look better now. You can go on. So <laughs> uh, <great. laughs> he put a Colstrom Breckenbacker around me, plugged me into a Vox AC30. I could have gone to heaven. Wow. I mean, are you serious? He said, and uh, we're doing Gloria to start with, and Glenn, you started. What do you mean? I started. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. I'm, I'm, I'm panicking, heart's pounding. The 17-year-old's going, I, it was all too surreal for me. And they ended up, Purple Hearts, going to, to Melbourne, wanted to go to Melbourne. And I had to ask my mom, I said, well, I want to go to Melbourne with the band. I said, no, you can't. I'm not, I'm not letting you go to Melbourne. You're 17 years of age. You're not going to leave Brisbane and join a rock and roll band. Um, you know, you've got a good job. You're a photo lithographer. <laughs> um, and uh, I had to let that one go. And um, eventually, basic union, I became of age, I became 18. Um, we decided to do the same thing. We decided to move to Melbourne because Brisbane was a little bit restrictive in those days. And um, we did, and that's how it all started. And we came down to Melbourne and uh, struggled to make a living. We really did not do that well. We made one single uh, for festival. Um, but we happened to live in a street infamous that was full of bands, in Carlisle Avenue and Balaclava, and it was a dead-end street. And there's the blocks of flats, and in them were running, jumping, standing still, Max Merritt and the Meteors, the Lardy Dars, Masters Apprentices, and the Bay City Union. This cluster wow. of bands in all in this one little dead end street. And all we struggling to make a living. And, yeah. Uh, we became friends with the Masters, and Jim Keyes eventually came to me and said, We'd like you to join the Masters Apprentices. So it was sort of the sublime to the ridiculous for me because the base of the union was a, a little blues band and here I'm joining a pop band. Um, Matt Taylor didn't forgive me for a long time because he thought I'd sold out. But I decided that base of the union were not going anywhere. We, we were struggling and we were hungry 
And so I joined the Masters, played bass for them, and spent the next four years of my life on this absolute merry-go-round with the Masters apprentices, playing to huge sellout crowds of screaming kids and being mobbed on stage and all my clothes being ripped off. And, and all. <laughs> it was a period of time that I was sublime to the ridiculous for me, but I loved every minute of it. And uh, the Masters were a real pleasure and part of my life, no doubt about that. That's awesome, mate. Yeah, I mean, as I've been researching, I've read that you had bigger crowds and frenzied crowds bigger than the Beatles at Festival Hall in Melbourne with, with the band. Well, no, that, it was Festival Hall in Brisbane. And oh, that, that was night Brisbane, was a very was particular night. It was a very special night because my mother was there watching with all pride her son come on stage in front of this screaming sold-out Festival Hall, screaming kids about, I must have been 5,000 in those days, but it was a, a, enormous. Um, we didn't get through the first three numbers before the, 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 the police couldn't control them. The kids were just rushing the stage and ripping all of our clothes off. In the end, I had my new velvet suit just in shatters, just in shreds, uh, and, and I was found myself down to my jockets and one sock. And the police came up and said, you're decently exposed, son. You've got to get off the stage. And I went, what, I had my guitar around me, and, and but I was down to my jockets. So anyway, the, the, they closed the show down, and the, the audience went crazy. And I remember going backstage. There were about twenty girls, all fainted, all passed out on the floor backstage, and um, stepping over them as I'm going there. And I just heard this promoter yelling out, "We had a bigger crowd than the Beatles." And I'm sitting myself going, "That hit me like a sledgehammer." And that night. As, as I had to get back to Lennon's hotel and I had to walk through the, the, the lobby in jockets, no socks, shoes, nothing, um, to get to my room. And I'm lying down in my room, still sweating from the, from Festival Hall, from the show, my ears still ringing from the kids that were screaming, and in my head it's going round and round, bigger crowd than the Beatles. Well, that night the penny dropped for me because I sat down and figured to myself, if we had a bigger crowd than the Beatles, we were only paid... $200 divided by four, that's $50 each. My velvet suit cost me $70. I was $20 out of pocket for a show that we completely sold out and had a, had a huge crowd at. So there was something wrong with this, and I started to come up with the concept of doing what we now know as door deals. I figured that we shouldn't the band be paid commensurate to how much we draw and not just have a flat fee? So. I changed everything around. We sacked our manager at the time. I took over management of the band as well as playing bass and started doing all the bookings for the shows and doing these deals, doing door deals, doing it against the numbers that we actually drew for each night. And that was the start of something for me. I mean, um, it was a big lesson and it was something that changed our lives, really. I mean, we started to make some decent money for the first time with the Masters and it was a big night. So it was an important night in my career, that one. Wow, mate. Incredible. So you started doing that, and then soon after you started a booking agency, how yep. were the other you know, booking agents in town um, coping with that? Well, Michael Gadinsky was at Ambo at the time, a company called Ambo, not at all happy that we'd set up a company called Drum, and we were taking his acts, we were signing a lot of up-and-coming acts, and between myself and... Adrian Barker, who was our, our road manager at the time for the Masters, we were coming in. This was a day gig for me now as well. Here I am, nine to five, booking other bands and other attractions for, for venues around the country. And uh, it didn't go down very well with, uh, with Gadinsky. <laughs> and they all made it a bit tough for us. But it sort of came to an end because we decided to go to London. Uh, we did this thing called Battle of the Sounds. And uh, we won a trip on the Sitmar, on the fair sky, to London. So that was the big move for us. We, we shut the drum down, I'm moving to London. This is it, we're going to the big shot. Um, and we, with the help of EMI at the time, got to record a couple of albums in Abbey Road, the famed studio that the Beatles used. And um, we didn't quite, the mustard in, in the UK, we struggled, we did a couple of shows at Blazers, the Speakeasy, and all those famous nightclubs of the 60s in London. Um, this was 1970 now. And, uh, but we decided to come back to Australia, and we had one more tour before we 
basically decided to pull stumps. We sort of didn't break up. We just stopped performing together, you know. And um, at that stage, I was looking for other things to do. We actually broke up the second time while we were in London, of all places. And I ended up getting a job in a management company that, fortunately for me, was involved in the management of people like David Bowie, The Sweet. And I was front and centre with all of those acts simply because my boss, a gentleman called Lawrence Meyer, who's one of my great mentors in life, was a very conservative English gentleman. And David Bell used to turn up at the office sometimes with lime green hair. The next day it was tangerine. And they used to freak Lawrence out. Lawrence would come to me and say, he's he's got lime green hair today. I I can't do this meeting. You're going to have to do the meeting. Wow. <laughs> I do the meeting with David Bowie, so with my one of my idols, going, oh my god! And in those days, he always was a genius. He always was creative, but he was he was doing a little bit of too much drugs, and he was, uh, you know, at sometimes, Lawrence used to say, he, his teeth are lime green as well as his hair, you know. <laughs> so he used to freak Lawrence Myers out. But uh, I, I end up being sent to America to set up the office there and be involved with people like the New Seekers and still David Bowie and, and, and the suite, and of all people, Gary Glitter, I was very much involved in the management of, um, when he was a nice guy, beat me or before he's got himself into all sorts of other trouble. But um, that, that was the start for me. Um, I got to the point where I wanted to come home to Australia, and the plan was I'm going to put together a band that I can take and bring back with me. And I was coming home via London, and I went and saw uh, Mississippi, play in London. Graham Goebel and B. Birdles were in the band. I saw them at this little club in Fulham, very impressed, but they lacked a front man. And uh, they came to me and they, they said, would you manage us? And I said, well, I think you need someone else in the band. I think you need a front man. And I was over there with Glenn Shorrock, who was there with the Twilights at the time, or Axiom. And um, I set up a, a rehearsal with Shorrock and Mississippi at Marty Christian's place from the New Seekers, who I was involved in management. And it was a Sunday afternoon, and we had a go at doing When Will I Be Loved, the, the famous song made famous by Linda Ronstadt. And the vocal blend that Shorrock brought to Goebel and B. Bertels was extraordinary. I had goosebumps listening to these people. It just was a natural blend right from the word go. And I was so excited about it. And so I said, look, I mean, this is the man. Glenn, do you want to join the band? You know, and he said, yep. I said, well, you're all going to come back to Australia because I'm going back to Australia. At the time, I had a pack on my back and I was hitchhiking my way home through Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, Nepal, the hippie trail in those days. And we arranged to meet in Australia in four months' time, and we did. And um, I started to get some gigs for them on our very first show in Geelong, and we still didn't have a band name. We're still under Mississippi and we're still trying to find a band name and we're going down the highway and went through Little River and Shorrock yells out from the back of the van, Little River Band. And everyone said, that's not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> so we went on stage that night as the Little River Band and that was it. We, we never looked back. You know, it was uh, there from then on. Um, extraordinary period of my life. Uh, we did a, an album here in Australia that it was all self-produced. I produced it with the band. and. Um, took it to America and proceeded to get rejections everywhere. I had 10 major rejections, and one particular will always stay in my mind. It was for the chap called Artie Mogul, who was, Artie was famous for discovering Bob Dylan and Laura Nairo. I mean, for somebody who's discovered Bob Dylan and Laura Nairo, I mean, I'm sitting in this man's office. It was all reel-to-reel tape in those days, and I, I hand him the reel-to-reel tape. He's sitting in one of those huge chairs with the big back, he turns around. I can't see him anymore because he's the, the chair's so big. I can see his hands out while he's feeding and the, the tape into the tape machine. Finger comes out, press the start button, uh, goes into the first three frames of "It's a Long Way There." And Thirty seconds, forty seconds into the song, he hasn't turned around to me. I'm sweating like a pig at this point. Going, oh God, what's what's going on? Finger comes out, stop. Still hasn't turned around. The music stopped. He turns around. He's got his fingers to his, in one of those sort of clasps into his hands and said, kid, you ever run your fingernails down a blackboard? Do you know that feeling you get when you run your fingernails down the blackboard? That's what this music does to me. Well, I just about burst into tears. I couldn't believe it. This was the famous 
Artie Mogul basically saying that's the worst thing I've ever heard. And I said, can I have my tape back, please, Mr. Mogul? I got it. I rushed out into the car park. It was United Artists at the time in the US in LA. And I, I cried. I'm sitting there going, wow. is it just me? Oh, my God. Is it just me? So tell me, let's fast forward. How many records did you go on to sell with Little River Band and how many well, hits? Well, as it turned out, I mean, I'd been rejected by every major company. It was Christmas Eve. I was over there by myself feeling, I mean, broke. I didn't know how the hell I was going to pay for this trip for a start. And the rejection still ringing in my head. I got a phone call on Christmas Eve from a guy called Rupert Perry from Capital Records. He said, Glenn, we love this. We want to sign the band. Holy moly. Capital Records. This is the famous Capital Records. So I... Clink the best bit of scotch I could find <laughs> and called everybody home and said, we've got a deal, we've got a deal, we've got a deal. And that was the beginning of it, mate. But then we went on Little River Band, as it turns out. We sold in America probably over 22 million albums. On the last two albums, I mean, we went, what started then was a six, eight years it was. We toured America incessantly, touring, touring, touring. The, the first tour I had three dates booked as a support to the average white band. We ended up staying five months. I, I just kept on extending, extending, extending. Wow. And we're picking up these dates at one, one date at a time, two dates at a time. And we ended up selling in our lifetime over there, over 22 million albums. And the last two albums, First Under the Wire and Sleeper Catcher, it's a different era. It's incredible the difference now. We shipped and sold over a million albums on day one of both of those albums. A wow. million albums and sold on day one. I keep telling everybody, that's when I was in the retail business. We were selling widgets. We were selling hard things. There was no streaming. There was no cassettes. There was no CDs. This is 12-inch vinyl albums that we shipped and sold over a million on day one. That That's how big the band was over there. And uh, it was an extraordinary situation. They were, I have to say, in the end, it was difficult to keep them all together because we'd become a little bit, I guess we toured so much. We paid the price. Um, a lot of our homes were suffering because we were on the road. And in those days, when you're on the road, you're on the road. There is no mobile phones. There is no phones. We can't afford to phone home. We're living and eating, sleeping on the bus every night. We'd finish up, get in the bus, get into our bunk, and we'd drive another 300 miles to the next gig, another six hours, eight hours in the bus, and get there the next morning, go straight to the venue, use the showers at the venue. <laughs> it was yeah, really wow. I mean, um, to put it in perspective for um, the younger people out there listening, I mean, you were really blazing a trail there because very few Australian bands had gone over or acts of any kind had gone over and done that. It was it was a pipe dream, really. It was incredible that you managed to pull that off really on the first go. We were the first Australian act to go gold, which is 500,000, and the first Australian act to go platinum, which is a million. But we were selling a million albums on every album. and. The tours that we were doing, I mean, we toured with everybody. We toured with the, the Eagles, with Steely Dan, with Fleetwood Mac, with Bob Seger. Um, it, the list was endless. It was extraordinary what Little River Band were doing. The Doobie Brothers became our best friends. We toured together everywhere with the Doobie Brothers. And we were sort of, I guess, a lot of people were infatuated by the fact that we were Australian and we didn't change that. We didn't want to sound American, but... I guess a lot of people with the harmony band that we were, I mean, we had Glenn Fry from the Eagles giving us the biggest compliments in the world saying, this is the best vocal band in the world. This is coming from Glenn Fry. Wow. We're in gobsmacked that we're on the same bill with. And, and we used to sneak up and listen to them rehearse in their dressing room before they'd go on. They'd be doing all their vocal harmony things. And as a band, we're sitting there going, oh, my God. God, listen to this. <laughs> this is the acoustic guitar and they're just doing their warm-up. What a treat that was. Yeah, and and flew it back. It was, yeah. it was extraordinary to do. And we were doing these huge festivals with these people. We were there with the Eagles the day they recorded their live album at Yale University in front of 60,000 people. Little Riverbed in them by themselves headlined in one particular show in Dallas, 
Cotton Bowl, the, the big footy stadium, we played to 60,000 people, Little River Band. Can you believe that? I've got a photograph of that to this day on my wall that I still look at in awe. I go, my God. Yeah. I, 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 lest we forget how big that band was in America. It was amazing. Yeah. We weren't quite as big in Australia, of course. We, we, we'd spent most of our time in America and yeah. and we, we just kept on going back. Wow, amazing. There must have been a lot of parties going down and there's a few casualties along the way. I mean, it's pretty impressive you guys survived that long on the road and I think most of you are still alive to tell the tale. Yes, look, we were pretty good. I mean, you know, we smoked a bit of dope. There was the parties, I mean, the Eagles, they used to, every night, they used to have one extra room that they booked under a non-diplume, under anyone's name, none of the band, and that was the party room. And I remember some nights, I mean, I, I did the rock star thing. I was there with Irving Azoff one night, the 24th floor from the Four Seasons Hotel in Toronto, I remember, opening up the window, getting one of the lounge chairs, and Irving Azoff and I heaving this lounge chair out the window into the swimming pool down 24 flights. I mean, uh, naughty, naughty <laughs> boys. My God. That was, but that was about the extent of it. That was about the extent of my naughtiness. But uh, it was insane, mate. It was incredible days and uh, something we'll, we'll, we'll never forget. Yeah, extraordinary negotiating Little River Band's um, deal with Capital. It was an $8 million deal, but it came in checks of $1.5 million. I didn't get the check for eight. That was It was based over a four-album deal, but it was legendary for the time. I mean, it was Little River Band and... It was a great period of life time for me because at the same time, I just started FM radio in Australia. I'd worked so hard for years to get the first commercial FM license in Australia. That was Eon FM. And so that was happening at the same time that, that I'm touring with Little River Band and at the same time I'm managing Australian Crawl. I mean, I, I mean, James Rain was no picnic in those days to manage, I had to tell you. <laughs> I love him to death these days. He's a very, very dear friend. But in those days we were, we were both wild young men. I had all of that going at the same time. And I managed Pseudo Echo at the time. I briefly had the pleasure made of, of looking after your gorgeous wife Kate for a short period of time it didn't quite work out because we were in different cities and different towns and I was never home and it was it was forever on the road but um I, yeah, was... I enjoyed that time by the way I was going to ask you about that later but um yeah I look back very fondly and we kicked a few good goals that tour we did at that time was brilliant yep. and the fact that I, I co-managed Kate Sobrano with Glenn Wheatley for a short while I, I look back <laughs> at very fondly well, I do too, mate. And uh, of course, we spent a lot of time together doing uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, yeah. uh, an extraordinary successful arena tour. That thing just wouldn't end. It just yeah. wouldn't stop. We just kept on adding show after show after show. I think in the end, we ended up doing something like about 60 arenas, if you can believe it. We I think it was uh, in uh, Melbourne. After, yeah, after arenas. having just read the book, I think it was 82 arenas you did. I think it was too. Yeah. I think I stand corrected. I think it was 18. <laughs> it, was, it was insane. Yeah. And it was legendary because we did the deal with Harry M. Miller uh, while he was still alive. And Harry was the legendary impresario. And uh, yeah. he was he was outraged, but he did produce one hell of a show. That was an extraordinary event, that arena version of Jesus Christ Superstar. We had Kate Sobrano, John Farnham, John, John Stevens. Stevens. Of course, he's playing yeah, Judas. Judas. Yeah. Um, John Waters. Angry Anderson. Anderson. I mean, <laughs> yeah, incredible lineup, mate. Wow. And um, the soundtrack album, I just read that too, 12 times no, four times platinum, 12 weeks at on, number on, one. On my label, on little weekly records at the time, no one else wanted to do it. So I ended up recording it and doing it and putting it out. And the bloody thing went to number one and stayed there for three months. So it was amazing. Yeah. It, it, it stacks up today. Yeah, yeah, it does. We get fan mail all the time from people just saying, you know, the, their favourite album of their, of their entire life. It's incredible. And by the way, thanks for the gift to direct the uh, music video for the song, I Don't Know How to Love Him. I know, I know. I mean, we did some great stuff with Kate and John. I, I often think we could resurrect it. I think it would still do the business today. It's one of those timeless products, you know, with great songs. I mean, John's version of Gethsemane, Tim Rice, 
to this day says it's the best version out of everybody's version of every production of Jesus Christ Superstar. He said, I loved the Australian cast better than any of them. Yeah, yeah. No, Tim has said the same thing to us as well. He's very, very fond of it, isn't he? Hey, yeah. um, give me an insight into you've negotiated some extraordinary deals. So the LRB one, we heard about $8 million with Capital Records. This deal on Jesus Christ Superstar with Harry, who would be, you know, no slouch when making a deal, but you managed to outmaneuver him and John and I'm guessing you, I don't know, but you ended up earning more on that on that thing than he did as the promoter. And then after several shows, he had to come back to you and renegotiate. And then the LRB one. Tell us, like, I mean, I've worked with you, so I know, but I'd love the audience to have an insight into Glenn Wheatley doing a deal in the boardroom. Are the lawyers there or are you in there on your own and you just think on your feet or do you have a real plan that you go in with? Like, how do you approach doing a deal? Uh, you've got to believe it in it for a start. You've got to believe in what you've got if you're trying to sell something or try and do a deal. You've got to believe that you've got the best product in the world and be able to go in there and convince everybody in that room that you have got the best product in the world and it's therefore worth this amount of money and put an intelligent price on it. Um, the, the deal with Harry was was quite funny because John Farnham was on a door deal and Harry said, oh, at, at stages he said, oh, look, we'll probably do 20 shows max. And so I said, okay, let's do the 20 shows at this fee. And then after the next 10, I want an increase here. The next 10 or another increase. The next 10 or another increase. But unfortunately, by the time we got to 80, there was no money left on the table for Harry. <laughs> and I remember him coming into the office with James Erskine, Gary Van Egmond, and Harry into my office in South Melbourne. And Harry getting on his knees, putting his hands up in the prey position. To me, and said, I'm begging you to give me a break. He said, because I can't afford to take the show to Perth on the current deal because we're going to lose a fortune <laughs> because we can't <laughs> make any money out of it. So I had to go back and renegotiate downwards uh, on the deal. But it was just one of those things. I mean, I'll never forget Harry, famous Harry, on his knees in my office <laughs> in front of, with witnesses, you know, in front of James Erskine and everybody. Insane. Um, but I guess uh, it was the same with when I was trying to buy a Triple M. I mean, it was it was a big negotiation. And in those days, I mean, it was the 80s. So money was it was comparatively easy to get. We were just paying 22% interest is, is the only problem. It was expensive money, but it was always there. Yeah. I sold Eon FM for $36 million to Rod Muir. So if you wanted to buy it back, I had to say, well, it's got to be worth $40 million. If I want to buy two Triple M in Sydney, the biggest market in Australia, that's got to be worth $50 million. So I put a value of 90 on, on this and went to Rod and said, I'll offer you $90 million to buy my farm back and to buy two Triple M in Sydney. And he wanted 110 You know, it was one of those things where it was just insane. Uh, but we, a week of bartering, negotiating, and, and it was tense. There was shouting. There was hugs. There was all the emotions that we went through. And I, I, I remember doing the deal with him and then we had to go to the airport with our legal counsel and Rod Muir had David Gonski as his legal counsel. The famous David Gonski was Rod Muir's lawyer. I had my lawyer with me and we were at the Golden Wings Lounge in Ansett and it was 6 o'clock at night and there was nobody in the room. We just made the announcement in Sydney to Triple M that we got a, a new boss and uh, Rod Mueller famously that day made the announcement to everybody, said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the man with the biggest balls in the country, Glenn Wheatley, is your new owner. So I had to come under that. And then in the middle of all this, Rod comes out with this chainsaw, starts up a chainsaw and proceeds to carve up the boardroom table, the Triple M, in front of my eyes, in front of the staff's eyes. And I'm going, didn't I just buy that table? And you're carving it up with a chainsaw? And he said, oh, mate, too many secrets on that table. It has to be cut up. So we cut it up in little pieces and gave a little piece of that boardroom table as a memento to every staff member, including me, and I slammed the chunk of the boardroom table. Um, we were on our way to Melbourne to do the same thing with Eon and tell them that we've just bought the farm back and everything else. But yeah, at the airport, Rod gets up and locks the door, and he comes back in and then starts to proceed to roll a five-paper joint. David Gonski is beside himself. 
he's got like, oh, Roger, you, you can't do this. Yet. I said, pig's ass, I can. We, you know, I got something to celebrate. I just sold him the two triple M. We're going to have this joint together. So he proceeds to roll this five-paper joint. Gonzi's beside himself. My lawyer is beside himself. They're just going, you can't do this. Yes, we can. Fucking, of course we can. And we did. <laughs> in, the, in the Golden Wings Lounge, uh, the, the old Ansett, when, when Ansett was around, and Be- that was before security York. cameras, yeah, no, no, that was wrong. Wow, mate, incredible. Hey, um, yeah, thanks for that insight onto the deal making. I mean, I've seen you in action, but you know, I'm trying to um give an insight into the listeners out there. Tell me, I mean, a lot's been said about how you mortgaged your house to pay for Whispering Jack for Farnham. You went to all the record companies, none of them wanted it. You backed yourself and it ended up becoming the highest selling album of all time. I think you're up to 1.8 million copies of Whispering Jack. Is that right? That's correct. No, mate, it was one of those things where John was still living on, unfortunately, to the, to the record companies, the EMIs, the Sonys. They were all passed on it, um, passed on signing Johnny. They didn't want to sign Johnny Farman. And it was sort of the leftovers from the Sadie, the cleaning lady days. And I, I knew that we had the best singer in the country. I mean, I came back from America to see John and I saw him perform at Twin Towns in Coolangatta. And um, I, I wanted to cry because I saw John came out dressed in a tuxedo and playing to a half-filled room with a four-piece band that couldn't play. They were the house band. And at one stage, halfway through the set, John turns his back to the audience, stops the band and says, guys, it's here. It's one, two, three, four, and had to count them in and start all over again. I wanted to die. I mean, I thought, this is John Farnham. Uh, working with a dreadful band in, in, in this situation. I went backstage with him from that show, got his black tie suit, threw it in the scrap bin with all the slop bin, with all the, uh, put all the food. I said, we're just going to rub you out, mate. We're going to start all over again. And that's what we did. We just started from the scratch. I got in the best band in the world. We had Tommy Emmanuel in the band. I mean, it was extraordinary. And we just had to get him contemporary again. But it wasn't enough for the record companies to sign him. They still wouldn't take a chance. So I mortgaged the house and proceeded to do Whispering Jack. It took us over 12 months because we painstakingly looked so hard to get every song had to be of merit to get on the album. And today I think that album still stacks up. And oddly enough, the last song that I found was You're the Voice. And that demo, when I played it to John here and I just looked at each other and said, oh, my God, that's got John written all over this song. And we rearranged it, made our own version of it, and thank God we did. I mean, the album went on to to sell 1.8 million albums. You're the Voice still stacks up to this day, is still the legend song. And it's just one of those situations that uh, all happened on little weekly records. And I, uh, and again, I had to pay for this thing. I had to go right out in the limb. I was sweating bullets. I mean, I, I thought, oh, God, what if we don't? Yeah. So after LRB, weren't you cashed up or had you spent that on other investments? Unfortunately, that came after the Ivy. That came after right. my decimation. Ah, uh, right. And so it was... Um, <laughs> it was a hard time. And so it was a nerve-wracking time for me and for John. John was decidedly thinking, shit, if this album doesn't work, you know, what am I going to do? He never would have said he'd give up or yeah. this would be the last time he's going to do it. But I could see that that's what he was thinking. You know, I mean, this was do or die for him. And uh, we, we had to put everything into it. Yeah. By the time we, we'd done the thing. It took them three days for Ross Fraser and John to mix all the voice. Three days. Come on. I mean, an afternoon, maybe, you know, to do a mix. They they laboured over this song for three days and finally got the call. We're ready. Come in and hear it. So Gator and I got a bottle of champagne, rushing into the studio, cranks it up, plays it to me, and I was left flat. And he looked around at me and said, you don't like it, do you? I said, mate, I think I loved your demo better than I do this finished song. She said, oh, fuck. Okay. All right, then, well, I'm going to do it again. Ross, turn out the lights. Turn up the cans. 
splittingly loud, I'm going to sing this thing again. And he went into the studio. He was angry. And he was mad at me because I dared say I didn't like it. My problem was he'd made it too perfect. They'd made it too clean and spot perfect. And he went out there and he sang Mm. the shit out of that song. And that night, the test in those days was to put it on a cassette and to put it into the car (laughs) on the way home and see what it sounds like in the car on a cassette. And I got goosebumps. That new version of his vocal was the one. We never looked back from there. I mean, it was that was the start of it, and um, it still is to this day. Extraordinary story. You guys are an amazing team. You've kicked so many goals. It's just off the chart, really. I'm sure there's been, well, I know there's been a lot of ups and downs. Give me another insight into, I don't know, I guess the hardest conversation you've ever had to have with John. We know about the highlights. Tell us about some of those conversations because... Management can be a pretty thankless task at times and there's lots of moving parts and there's lots of highs and lows in any artist's career. It, it can be. I mean, we, we, we disagree on several times in our lives. We've, we've had differences of opinion and differences of direction as to where we should be going, how we should be approaching things. The recording side of it, I've always had to be brutally honest with him. I mean, there's been songs he's recorded that I haven't liked, as I didn't like the very first track. He had it, You're the Voice. I mean, uh, I'll never forget him. It is anger because you're so pissed that Wheatley didn't like this thing. And here he is singing and he just turned the headphones up and turned the lights out, lit up this giant cigar as he did in those days and sucked it all back and just gave this thing curry and, and it was it was the version that, that we hear today. I mean, but there's been times when touring, most of the tours that we've done, he's always been reluctant to want to go out because he's always been concerned that one thing he's always said to me, please don't ever let me sing to a half-filled room. I do not want to be that artist that's now just only doing half houses. Don't ever let that happen to me, please. And that just rings in my head all the time. And there's so many of these tours I've suggested, I think, mate, we're going to do another arena tour because I I know it's there. I mean, and the talk of the town was one of those classic times. This was 20 years ago, but he did not want to go out. He just, mate, I'm terrified. We'll half fill this place. You know how we did it? In the end, we did 10 Rod Laver arenas, 10 in a row. That's how big this thing was, and I knew it was going to be that big. At the end of it, of course, he came up and put his arms around me, hugged me and said, mate, I fucking love you. You were right. You bastard. You were right. Thank you for pushing me out because it did work, didn't it? Yes, mate, it did work, and thank you for thanking me. But, gee, it was tough. There's, there's been instances where I just had to lay down and say, mate, we're going to do this. We have to do this thing because your fan base is such that they want to see you. We're not going to have half-filled rooms. I promise you. I promise you we're not going to have half-filled rooms. And that's the main issue in his life at the moment. Um, he is the penultimate performer. He's the most generous performer that I've ever had the pleasure of working with anybody, and I've worked with all of them. Um, generous by that, he gives 100%, mate. You can set your watch to his routine on show day. He puts himself through this and he puts the band through it. It's an alcohol-free zone before the show. He doesn't want to smell alcohol on any of the band's breath. This is the office. We're here to work and we're going to be making sure we give everybody the best show we possibly can. I don't care what you do at the end of the show. John's the first to neck a bottle of wine after a show, but nothing beforehand. And there's, there's rules that we, to this day, adhere to. And he has this routine why? Because by the time he goes through this, his little warm-up, he does the sound checks, he does all the thing and the warm-up and the backstage little prep. Uh, by the time he hits that stage, he hits it running. Yeah. And the audience know it. Yeah. And the audience lift with him. And, and the reaction that to an audience when, when John first hits that stage is extraordinary. Why is it? Because they don't get to see him otherwise. He doesn't do the, the, the red carpets. He doesn't do interviews. He doesn't do anything. If you want to see John, you've got to see him perform. And the expectation before each of his shows, you can feel it in the audience. It's, 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 it's extraordinary. Yeah. And he just gives, he'll come off, it's like someone's throwing a bucket of water over him. He's yeah. just a lather of sweat 
and perspiration because he's put in, he's given his heart and soul. He does not hold back one bit. And the audience love him for it. And that's why he gets them. That's why they're there for him. They know that he's bleeding for them. The enthusiasm that he then generates into the band is there, you know. That's the only way that he's sustained for this long. And he's still the biggest grossing attraction in the country. He's the only one who can guarantee you're going to sell those arenas out. He's inspiring. He's inspiring like that. He inspires the band. The band love the discipline of being on the road with John. So they've got to be on and they've got to be accurate. I mean, if, there, if, there, if there's something that's not right, I mean, John doesn't know how to sing out of tune. That's all he cares about, you know. Yeah. And it's the same with if we're doing a, a TV special, it doesn't care what it looks like. I just want to make sure it sounds right. Yeah, yeah, I'll make yeah. sure that I've got my man in there. I've got Doug Brady doing the sound. I've got the people that he knows and trusts that he knows that they know how to get the best out of John. And and that's that's what it's all about. It's, it's about performance. And Kate Sobrano, your wife, is exactly the same. Her performances are legendary. She doesn't know how to sing out of tune either. There are people like that that just somehow have got that gift, but they've also got it's more than a gift. It's a strength. It's an energy that they want to make sure they're doing this thing right and to the best of their ability. And yeah. you do that, you're going to get the, the audience with you every time. Yeah, true, mate. Thank you. Hey, You've been a busy guy. You've done so many different things from the radio stations to all the rest of it. Have you had conversations with him where he's like, Wheatley, will you just like just stop doing so many different things and just focus on what we're doing? Um, I, I think I, I'm, I'm exasperating to him sometimes, to John, because I don't stop. I mean, at the moment during COVID, I'm managing to put together the basis of what I believe is going to be an extraordinary stage theatrical show based on songs of John Farnham. It's not going to be John Farnham's life. It's a great concept, brilliant concept, written by Tommy Murphy, and Tommy has come up with a concept that I get goosebumps. And when I put the Farnham songs together, his catalogue, which is so deep now, I think we're going to end up with a very, very good chance at a very successful stage show that's all about John's songs. Um, but that's something that I'm, I'm seriously working on. I'm probably giving away too much here, but we've got a, an extraordinary team of people putting this together. And there's also going to be a, a definitive biopic on John, but not a biopic. John's not going to star in anything, but it's just basically a theatrical release that is going to be put out by Amazon, believe it or not. And again, something I'm working on, we have got some stuff that is extraordinary, stuff that a lot of people have never seen before. And we're putting it all together and making this into an hour and a half, probably two-hour theatrical release. So there's things that I'm doing all the time that sort of freak John out a bit because he goes, oh, God, you, you might ask me to do some interviews about this. You know, <laughs> yeah, I might, John, but uh, I know so he's, he's happy with you being busy on all those projects as sort of, um, you know, to do with him in a way. So that's cool. But so back in the 80s and 90s when you were the medium mogul, um, he kind of let you do your thing, did he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, he, he thought I was crazy. I mean, at one stage, I mean, I, I'm buying stations right, left and centre. I mean, I actually bought more than the legal limit in those days and I had to sell four of them. I ended up with about 18 stations, radio stations that uh, we had there, including the Triple M's, including the FM 104's that I turned into Triple M. And, of course, I turned Eon FM into Triple M. I did the name change there and we did the whole thing. So I, I was very much the start of building that that radio little empire that it is to this day. Very proud of the – it was Rod Muir's name, Triple M. Eon was always my name. Um, I have to say a little bit of help with Trevor Smith on that. Trevor was my first program director and – it was he that came up with the name Eon that I just loved ever since, and it's still the name of my broadcasting company, Eon Broadcasting. I was my two little radio stations up on the Sunshine Coast, and and there's others now going to be joining the, the fray there as well. Right. But uh, John has always sort of shook his head looking at, at my work. He thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> it, it's what I am. It, it's it's I can't sit down. I, I can't imagine ever retiring. I mean, I can't imagine it. Yeah. And, mate, Tell me, as I was, you know, here for the last few days in quarantine reading your book, thinking, 
oh, my God, here I am in a 40-day in a single <laughs> hotel room, you know, and um, there you are in Melbourne doing a similar thing. How is the whole, I don't want to go into it unless you want to, but the whole tax scenario and how you ended up in a, a quarantine of your own there, how did you get through that? And clearly you've come out the other side and you've, you've still got your mojo and you're creating on some great things. Matt, um, I got myself into a bit of a mess and if I can get myself into the mess that I did, which I'll talk about, then anybody can. Um, I took advice from my lawyer, what I thought was tax planning. It wasn't tax planning. It was basically tax avoidance. And so his planning program of me taking some money offshore into a bank account into Switzerland and then wanting to bring it back in as a loan was, in his view, tax planning. No, it's tax avoidance. And I got pinged. It was all under a thing called Operation Wickenby. And Operation Wickenby was chasing some of the biggest tax avoiders in the country. I was a minnow in the scheme of things, but unfortunately, I had a brand. I had an image and I had a name that was important to the tax department to make an issue of. And unfortunately, I became the pinup boy for the tax department on Operation Wickenby. I got more publicity than I deserved out of it. And out of a small amount of money that I sent overseas on legal advice, it's not me trying to cover, I, I was guilty. I did it, but I thought I thought it was tax planning. I thought it was all basically above board. It wasn't. And how I got sucked into doing this thing means that anybody could. I end up going to court. I end up being convicted of tax avoidance, and I served 10 months in jail with it. And it was an extraordinary period of time for me to do that. I couldn't believe it. Glenn Wheatley going to jail. How did this ever happen? What went wrong here? It was tough being inside because I had a profile and every young guy that would come in, they'd all go looking for Wheatley. And a lot of times... I found it difficult because I found myself in, in an extraordinary situation. I didn't get hurt, but I got, I came very close on many an occasion. People just looked at me just to give me a whack, just for bragging rights. I whacked Wheatley, and I had to work with the, the boys in blue to get, to get me through this sometimes. I mean, you know, um, I, I saw some dreadful things happen in prison, and not the least of which was some of them trying to just get to me to give me a whack. I didn't offend anybody. I didn't look at anybody. I just did my own thing while I was inside. But gee whiz, it was tough, mate. And it was it was tough for me when I came out too. I, I went through a period of time where I couldn't go into crowds of people. I, I'd have anxiety attacks. I guess you call it post-traumatic stress. I was I was a mess. I couldn't do it. It was people like John Farnham that basically got me going, mate, you're gonna do this. Fucking silly prick. You can do this. God, you've been through everything in your life. You know, yeah, yeah. The the Ivy and the Pyramid Building Society collapse around you, and you you know you recovered from that. You'll recover from this. And we went out and we, we toured. I mean, it's ten years ago now, and I'm not scarred, but I occasionally wake up sometimes at night with what I call the willies, oh, still thinking of. There's nothing worse than being locked up every night in lockdown, and we think we're in lockdown now. That was lockdown. That was in a six-by-four cell, 10 months of my life. Not pleasant at all. But, mate, I'm stronger for it. I was an idiot to take the advice that I did. I still stole myself over taking the advice. How did I ever get into this? But I did, and I got out. And you know what? 99% of the people on my side, they, they thought it was unfair, a little bit unjust, my treatment, because I, I was the pin-up boy. I should have maybe got a hefty fine, but to be sent to jail, that was extraordinary. Yeah. But yeah. Um, and I'm good now, mate. I, mean, I got freedom. I mean, the day I got out, of course, there was a buddy, an O.J. Simpson car chase down the Hume Highway. There was a 24 paparazzi chasing me in my car as I left the jail. Three helicopters tracing us all the way down. I was live on the breakfast show on Channel 9. They're doing me live following the car down the Hume Highway the day of my release. And I'm sitting, I'm listening to myself on 3AW, 
<laughs> the breakfast program, and they're going, oh, and Clint's just taken a V-turn, he's coming off the freeway, I don't know if he's allowed to do that, he's supposed to be going straight home. No, I was going to the place where they're going to put my ankle bracelet on, because <laughs> I was going to be doing the, the next few months on home detention. Yeah. But here I am, listening to myself on the radio, got home to find myself, I was live on TV, all the way down the Hume Highway, Carl Stefanovic talking about Wheatley and following me in a car down the highway. I mean, what extraordinary stuff. I mean, and then, of course, they camped outside my home for, for weeks trying to get the shot. And I'm, I just have to say to everybody, you're not going to get the shot, mate. I'm not giving you the shot. I'm not giving it to you. Wow. I'm not going to do it. I don't, I don't want that, the first shot of Wheatley, you know, having left prison. You copped a raw deal, mate. You really did. Look, I think I did. I mean, I, I don't feel sorry for myself. And I blame myself for getting into that situation. Bad advice, Glenn. My lawyer was a crook. He was getting the money. He was making money out of this. And I didn't know that until I was in the courtroom, until I saw all these documents. I go, I didn't, I didn't know. Some of the money that I'm sending over to where I thought was into Switzerland was going into his bank account. He ended up going to jail as well. He deserved to. I mean, he was, he was wow. a bad lawyer. He was a bad lawyer. And I, I just took it was bad advice. But I was my fault and such an idiot to have gone along with it. But um, it's done, paid for, and I'm able to do business with everybody. There's not a person here in this country that does not want to do business with me because of that. I mean, I think they all believe that I got a pretty rough call. I, I, I didn't deserve a whack. I should have maybe got a big fine. But, yeah. Well, yeah. that's good to hear, mate. Good to hear you've you've um, had that support, yep. and um, you know it's even better to see that you've kicked on and had so many um, other successes and highlights since that time. Well, we have. I mean, the work I do with John is still still does record business every time we go out, and um, you wait until we see the next one. Yeah, wow. Yeah, those those shows you got in the pipeline sound fantastic, mate. Hey, um, just lastly, on the music business in twenty twenty. Obviously, um, you know, we could talk about that for an hour and we won't, but um, you're a radio guy to the core and we have streaming, a lot's changed. At the end of the day, it's still all about the music, which is comforting. But if you had a young artist that was starting out now and they said, hey, Glenn, what route should we take? Should we, you know, record at home and build up all the songs and build our profile ourselves and put it out there or should we try and get a deal with a major label? Which option would you take in 2020? Well, you could take either option. And I say that because I have got major deals with major record companies and I'm I'm not unhappy about them, as opposed to Kanye West, who's now publishing his universal contract online, screaming blue murder that is, you know, it's unjust and, you know, unfair and blah, blah, blah. I'm quite comfortable with signing with the major record companies because it's all about relationships with those people. And if you've got a good relationship, if you've, if you've got the product, then you're, you're going to be fine and there's, there's fair deals to be done. There's a lot to be said, however, going the other way, doing it totally independent. And a lot of the people have got adverse problems about signing with the majors, and I understand that. And with regards to you know everyone's being able to stream these days, I mean, people are recording in their bathrooms. Uh, it's all digital these days. And putting it up there online, but the only problem with that is that you're up there with 10 million other people uh, and you've got to get through the clutter and there's a lot of clutter up there and there's a lot of bad stuff that shouldn't be up there Yeah, because anybody who's done anything just puts it up there. Yeah. And that's where having a record company is sometimes a help because they have people in A&R, artists and repertoire departments that work with you on the songs to make sure that what you've got is good enough to put out there it's good enough to be released. Yeah. I mean, the way we approached Wishbone Jack was we treated it like it was the last recording we're ever going to do. This is going to be the best. Every one of those songs had to stack up, and that's what we did. And everybody who's doing it these days has got to do the same thing. You can't put up mediocre stuff and think that everything you've done is great and so you're going to get up there online and you're going to magically get a, a tones and eye out of this thing and get one of those records that's just going to go bang. It doesn't happen like that. It's still got to be great, great songs. And the artists of this today, I mean, I can't tell you enough. They've got to just make sure that everything they do is the best of their ability. They put everything into it. 
that it is the best that they can do at that time. If it's not, then don't release it. Don't put it up there. Don't put it online because you're wasting your time. You know, it's got to be good or it's got to be very good. Streaming, I don't think it's affecting my radio business at all. Radio will always be a source for people wanting to hear new material. I have my Spotify account, but my Spotify account is a derivative of everything that they know I like. I'm struggling to find the new stuff in Spotify that I would like to hear, whereas radio, it's debatable, of course. There's a big debate about we don't play enough local content, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I hear it all the time. Uh, But radio is still the vehicle for people to get and hear new songs, to hear the new product. I think radio will always be radio. Streaming is now 85% of the sales of all of our content in the music business. Vinyl accounts for 5% of it. CDs only account for 10%. Can you believe it? 85% of our revenue is now through streaming. So, yes, we are in a different world. And when I think about my old days when I used to say, joke, I used to be in retail. I used to sell 12-inch vinyl albums one by one to retail stores. I mean, it doesn't happen anymore. We're streaming. And, and that is the way until the next thing. But CDs, in two or three years' time, may be a thing of the past too. It may yeah. go the way of the eight track may go the way of the cassettes. Yeah. It's just the way it is. I think there'll always be a vinyl because there's the nostalgia and that feeling of uh, it's something special that you're holding and you get to own it. So I think that there'll be always a small market for vinyl, but clearly our whole business model now is based on streaming. And I think radio is still going to have a very important part to play in that in the future of the music industry. So I'm I'm I can cannot be convinced otherwise. (laughs) Good. No, sounds good, mate. You're a true rock and roll survivor. You're a legendary Aussie. Thank you for the conversation today and thanks for the for the years of entertainment. Thank you, Lou. And it's been a pleasure talking to you, mate, and I hope I've made sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Good on you, mate. Have a good day. Hopefully see you in the flesh sometime soon. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Cheers. Well, what a mind-blowing life, hey? Glenn Wheatley's story and achievements are certainly off the chart. Let's hope there's many more chapters to come in this story. Next week's guest is another one who was on my wish list. She's one of Australia's most popular broadcasters and authors, Indira Naidu. If you're enjoying these podcasts, don't forget, head over to Apple Podcasts or any of your other platforms, subscribe, rate the show, give it a quick review, you know the drill. Until next week, live large the blank canvas is produced by lee rogers and me rin mcdonald with audio support by jason murphy at gas inc and music by rodrigo bustos this has been a millevich production